Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, my name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. If I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet, I would love to do that. And maybe you're a dude, and this is a, a, a new thing to step into a faith community. So that's why we said, hey, let's go shoot some guns together, and then we'll open God's Word there. So maybe I could entice you to come out and join us for that, if that's your thing, too. There is a central claim to Christianity that everything rises and falls from this one thing. And it's not, is there a God? That's a great question. And it's not, is heaven or hell real? That's also a great question. And it's not, is the Bible trustworthy? That's also not the central claim that Christianity rises and falls from. The most important question, I would argue, is this. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Did he actually die? Did he actually rise from the dead? And the question that, that is kind of an extension of that is not just, did it, like, do you believe that to be true? Do you believe that to be true? If you don't, I would ask the question, why don't you? Why don't you believe that's true? And further, what do you actually think happened? What's your explanation for the events surrounding this really unbelievable thing that Christians have been celebrating for 2,000 years? Every Easter, it's not about the eggs, it's not about the chocolate and the bunnies. We're celebrating this thing called resurrection. What's your explanation for it if you don't believe that it's true? Besides, one of the things we said last week is that the Christian faith is not founded on a book. It's based on an event because these early first century Christians, they never had what was understood as the Bible because the Bible as we have it didn't exist for hundreds of years. When James, when, when uh, Luke, when Matthew and Mark, when they were writing these accounts, to them they were never writing the Bible. They never knew that their writings were going to be put together into a collection of 66 other books that they believed was inspired and trustworthy and true. They never knew that was the case. All they knew was they were describing a person and they were describing an event. And that event, if it's true, if it actually happened, it actually changes everything. It changes everything because because if Jesus actually rose from the dead then everything he said was true because he called his shot he said I'm going to die and I'm gonna come back from the dead and if he can call his shot like that and then actually do it then everything he said was true. His claim to be God, his claim to have authority over life and death, the way he spoke to people, the way that he redefined our relationships with one another, the way he redefined our relationship with God. If he rose from the dead, and it's actually true, then we have to accept everything that he said. And if he didn't, if he didn't rise from the dead, well then why mess with any of it? If he didn't rise from the dead, he's no different than any other leader that came and went in the first and second centuries and in history past. 
The issue, the issue that everything hangs on is not whether or not you like what he said, but is whether or not he actually rose from the dead. We're in a series called Skeptical, and I just want you to think about the definition, and this just came from me Googling it, right? What does skeptical mean? It means this. It means to not be easily convinced, to have doubts or reservations. And for many of us, we might approach many things in life that way, but specifically, this issue of spirituality and heaven and hell and God and the Bible and miracles and Jesus and who he was and what he did, we have doubts. We have reservations. And if that's you, you know what? I, I don't blame you because I would be skeptical if I knew everything you knew and if I experienced everything you experienced, I'd be the same way. And actually, I think it's actually a good thing to be skeptical, to have reservations about someone who claims to be God, right? Like if someone came up to you in the street and said, hey, I'm actually, I'm actually God, I'm all powerful, I know everything, you should be skeptical about that. You should be skeptical about someone who claims to rise from the dead, who's someone who claims to have authority over the way that you live, especially when they lived 2,000 years ago. In fact, skepticism, I, just, I, I'm not sure. I don't know what I believe, but I'm, I'm slow to believe it. I, I have reservations. That posture was actually the default position for most of Jesus' friends, most of the people who were following after him, especially these, these people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the folks who wrote the narrative accounts, they were skeptical. They were major skeptics. But in the end, they were so convinced that what they saw was true and actual that they gave their lives for it because they thought that it was true because of who they understood, not just what Jesus did, but who Jesus claimed to be. And so this weekend, my hope is that we would think critically about that question, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And I want you to wrestle it yourself, and I wanna look at reasons, I wanna look at evidences, I wanna look at arguments against it, and then counter arguments that might help you process, process, process this. You know, many people, when they, when they think about the resurrection, they might think, you know, well, prove to me the existence that the resurrection actually happened. Like, you prove it to me. But the resurrection also puts a burden of proof upon those who would be non-believers. It's not simply enough to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You have to come up with some historically feasible alternate exploration, explanation for the birth of this thing called the church that's been growing like wildfire that's still growing 2,000 years later. There must be some plausible explanation. And so I want to lay out for you five arguments, five common arguments people might have about why they would say, I don't know that I believe that it's true. Here's the first argument. Argument number one, the resurrection narratives, so the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't written for a long, long time after Jesus supposedly did all of this stuff, long after the events themselves. So if that's true, like it's like 60 years later, 100 years later, if that's true, 
then that means that the empty tomb is just a fabrication. It's just a bunch of lies. The challenge with that is that one of the first accounts that we have in our New Testament is actually not one of the Gospels. It's, it's the account that Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi. It's the book of Philippians. And this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Excuse me, yeah, not the Philippians, the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now keep in mind, the, the Bible didn't exist. He's not talking about the Bible that we know about. He's talking about the Old Testament Torah at this point in time had predicted that a Messiah was going to come. And Paul is saying this was the guy. This was the guy. According to the scriptures, he was buried. And then he was raised on the third day. Not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. On the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. You might know of the uh, disciple Peter. And then to the 12, the rest of the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Many of whom are still living, he says, even though some have fallen asleep. And this was written 15 to 20 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It was, it, it, what we see in this passage is, is not only one of the clearest examples of what the gospel is, it's Paul painting a historical account, a historical event. This is so important. It happened on the third day. It's not just a metaphor. He points to specific things that happened. And Paul indicates that Jesus not only appeared to a few individuals, right? It wasn't just like, hey, I showed up to one person. It says over 500 people at the same time. And many of those, he says, many of them are still alive. That meant, you know what Paul was saying, fact check me investigate it. Marta, you were there. John, you were there. You saw it. Guys, if you, don't, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They were there. Many of them were still around, he says. He says it's investigable. And last week, we talked about some other reasons why the accounts wouldn't be fabricated. Things like this. Things like the first witnesses were women. And in the first century, to them, they were considered, they were considered the least trustworthy witnesses in fact, women weren't admissible. Their testimony wasn't admissible in, in the court of law then. Right? Other things like this, like they wrote embarrassing things about themselves. About themselves. Why would they do that if they were manufacturing, if they were making it up? It's too gnarly. It's too embarrassing to be fabricated. Argument number two. Argument number two. It, some people would say maybe, and I've heard some, some um, authors say, you know, it was like that game in school where it was just whisper down the lane. You know that game that you would play when you'd have a, a string of people and you would say a secret phrase to the first person and they would pass it to the next, the next, the next, until it made its way around and by the time it came back, it was so in, like uh, silly and goofy that it, that it was just completely distorted. And people would say, that's what we're talking about. It would just went one person to another and over time, it got twisted as it went. Now, firstly, we have to remember that this culture was not our culture. This was a different uh, culture, a different type of people, and they largely were illiterate. So verbal histories, 
passing down of history, verbally telling those stories was a significant part of their culture, and they were good at it. We're not so great at it, right? We had a, a team member who was from Africa, and he grew up in a storytelling culture, and in small group, when he would tell a story, I was like, he is better than the rest of us because he was anime, he remembered all of the parts of the story. It was a different kind of culture. In fact, anthropologists show that ancient cult cultures were able to clearly distinguish between fiction and nonfiction. Fiction, the made up stuff, it was generalities. It was in general places, in general spaces, in general times. But things that were actual were always very specific. They were identifying, hey, you can go there, you can investigate this, you can talk to this kind of person. And that's what Paul is dealing with. He's saying it's coming from the mouths of people who actually saw them. It's not a whisper down the lane. It was someone who saw these two things come together and they said, well, I know that Jesus died, I saw it, the Romans are very good at crucifying, and yet there's an empty tomb, and I saw a visible Christ. I don't know how to reconcile that, they would think. Author and scholar N.T. Wright argues that when you bring those two things together, the empty tomb and the personal meetings, that it's even more historically certain when you realize that they have to be taken together. Because think about it. If there was only an empty tomb and there was no sightings, you would think, well, someone stole the body. That's what happened, right? Yet, if there was only eyewitness accounts and there was no empty tomb, man, it would just be another situation of a brokenhearted person seeing a loved one in a hallucination. This happens all the time. Last year, my family visited Mount Vernon. We'd never been there before. The, 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 the homestead of George Washington. And it was fascinating. I didn't know I was gonna discover this, but as we were walking around the, the grounds, we're walking down this pathway, and there was this constructed like stone building, and there's a person standing on the outside of it, and the door is open, but it was grated on there, like there's a grate there. I didn't know it, but it was George Washington's tomb. He was buried there. And there was a, like a stone casket, one for George Washington, and a stone casket for his wife. Now, I had grown up hearing about George Washington, and he was one of the most influential founders of our country, the first president, many amazing things he did. I watched documentaries on the History Channel about him, and yet here I am, and I'm standing, and I'm saying, his body is right there. It's right there. Like, like if you opened it, there would be the remains of George Washington. It felt very actual. It felt very tangible. And listen, no one in Jerusalem would have believed their preaching for one minute if that tomb wasn't empty. Because skeptics could have easily said, there's this body. It's rotting right there. There it is. That's him. It would have been the end of it right there. There would have been no argument to be made. Argument number three, someone stole the body. And, and if you think that way, you're in great company because all of the disciples thought that at the beginning, right? What did they do with him? Someone took him, they thought. But again, the problem was not just that it was an empty tomb, but that he was physically seen. Not by one person, but by multiple people all at the same time. And you can't excuse that away. If I just saw him, they might be like, well, maybe you ate something. But when we both saw him together, like, you just saw that too, right, Chris? Like, that just happened, and it was 500 people did that. 
So it's, that's not plausible either. Argument number four, argument number four. It was all one big conspiracy story. They got together, they exchanged notes, they said, if we play our cards right, man, we're really gonna be able to start something here, right? J. Warner Wallace, he was a homicide detective. He points out then when you're looking for a real explanation of what happened in a situation like the resurrection or a murder, you must always resist conspiracy theories because true conspiracy stories are rare, he says. They're extremely hard to pull off. He says conspiracy stories that are successful share a few common characteristics. There's a small number of conspirators, there is thorough and immediate communication, and little to no pressure applied on the people or the story. And none of these characteristics apply to Christianity and to the resurrection. Jesus appeared to more than 500. The news spread widely and quickly, and yet there was no way for them to have, like, they didn't have texting, right? There wasn't like IMing each other at that point in time. They had no way to do that. The accounts were detailed. They could be interviewed. They could be corroborated. And then ultimately, the highest level of pressure was exerted upon them to discourage them from sharing this news. They said, hey, you're going to be tortured. You're going to be murdered because of this. So it can't be a conspiracy story. And argument number five, and I think this is probably the most popular one for our modern Western minds today here right now, and it's this, that ancient people, they were ignorant, they were simple, and they were easily duped. Like, we've got it figured out. We're enlightened. Look at all these processes we have to understand truth. They didn't have that, so they must be easily deceived. The assumption behind this is a form of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Want to sound smart at your next dinner party? Use that. Chronological snobbery. We imagine that any modern person would approach claims of the resurrection with skepticism, but these ancients would have gone right along with it. But the problem is that's not the case. To them, an individual bodily resurrection was so far out of their worldview that it would have been something that they could not accept. It would be inconceivable. So in the Mediterranean world, in both the East and the West, they were greatly influenced by Greek and Roman thought, the Stoics and the Skeptics. And they thought at that point in time, for them, they had a, a dualism to their understanding of the spiritual and the physical. So they would look at your spirit, and your spirit would be regarded as something that was undefiled, good, um, like that's, that's the good stuff was your spirit, and your body was defiled, was polluted, was corrupted. And so to them, salvation was always seen as like liberating the soul from the body. Someone who had been liberated would never want to go back to that state again. That would be undesirable for them. The goal was to be free of the body forever. Now, unlike the Greeks, the Jews had a holistic understanding. All of life was sacred. So for them, life itself was sacred. And death wasn't seen as a liberation. Death was seen as a great tragedy. In fact, their core belief, these Jews who believed in the Old Testament, their core belief was that someday God was going to come back. And when God came back, he's going he's to make death go away. 
and he's going to fix the pain and the suffering and the sickness and the disease and the frustration and the corruption and the pollution and the hatred and all of these things. God would make it right as a part of his kingdom of God. But in that future, it was always something that was seen as collective. God would come back and he would take the collective of the Jewish people and there would be a resurrection. The resurrection was just seen as a part of a comprehensive whole and it was never understood to be something that one person would experience as an individual. It was always meant to be a collective expression. So the individual, this idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history while the world around them was burdened by sin and disease and decay and depravity, it was inconceivable for them. Timothy Keller in his book Reason for God is an excellent read. He says this, he says, if someone said to a first century Jew, hey, so-and-so has been resurrected from the dead, the response would be, are you crazy? How could that be? Has disease and death ended? Is true justice established in the world? Ridiculous. He says the very idea of an individual resurrection would have been impossible for a Jew and for a Greek to imagine. But to these early Christians, when they, when they saw the risen Christ, their worldview, their understanding about what God was up to, it changed overnight for them. And if you're a skeptic, again, I, I don't blame you. It's almost too crazy to be true. But this worldview change that happened overnight, it presents another challenge for us. N.T. Wright points this out. He, he says that every massive shift in thinking in the worldview level happens over a period of time. It happens as the result of years of discussion and argument, various thinkers debating issues on which side wins. This was how culture, this was how worldviews changed. However, the Christian view of resurrection, absolutely unprecedented history, it sprang full-blown, overnight, immediately after the death of Jesus. There wasn't any discussing. There wasn't any debating about it. They were just telling each other what they had seen. And even if you propose this highly unlikely idea that a few of Jesus' disciples made up the idea that he was risen from the dead, you have to somehow explain how they were able to dupe all the rest of the people with that worldview that they were fully baked in. And yet, the Christian faith sprung up overnight. It changed their understanding. It changed them so much that it took off like wildfire in the face of great adversity. And like we talked about last week, Almost all those disciples died for it. As Blaise Pascal, a great mathematician and scientist, he said this. He says, I believe the witnesses. I'm going to go with the witnesses that get their throats cut. So, if it's not enough for the skeptic simply to dismiss the resurrection, saying, you know what, it couldn't have happened, you have to face this question. How did Christianity, how did it emerge with such rapidness and with such power? Because no other band of messianic followers concluded that their leader was raised from the dead. So why did they? 
How do you account for hundreds of witnesses who lived for decades and declared publicly their allegiance to Christ, even giving their lives for this? You know, I, I sympathize with those people who say, but this is so hard to process and understand. I don't know that I can go along with this claim that someone resurrected from the dead. I, I, can, I can sympathize with that. And I just would remind you that these early disciples, they all felt the exact same way. They couldn't believe that it was true. They, they didn't just have skepticism like, I am slow to be convinced. They had no mental framework to understand what was happening at the time. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. There's orange ones underneath you. Some of you, the page is 741. If you don't have a Bible, please take it, write your name on it. It's our gift to you. And as we turn there, here's what I, I want to do. Yeah, let's start in uh, John 19. Verse 40, here's what's happening. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, we shared this last week. Joseph was a, a leader in the, uh, the Jewish religious system. And Nicodemus was a leader. And they decided that they would take Jesus after he had been crucified by the Romans. And his body was dead. And he was hanging there. He decided that, hey, we're going to take him down. And we're going to give him a dignified burial. It says this in verse 40 page 741, says, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. The garden, there was a tomb, which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So let me press pause for a moment. I want to talk about those Jewish burial customs. Because when someone died, there was one of two things that would happen. If they were a criminal, they would take them, take their body, and they would put them on a cart and haul them out to this trash heap outside of the city where they would have taken their leftover goat <laughs> and whatever else they were eating, and, and they would throw it out there, and it would become this rotten place where animals would come and forage, and it was disease and just disgusting and so they would take the criminals and they would throw their naked mutilated bodies on the pile as a testimony for everyone to see but if you weren't a criminal like most people weren't and what you would do is you would take them and you would put them in a family tomb you would put them in a, a family tomb so here's what would happen if you were home and grandma or mom or dad died you would because there was no morticians there was no funeral directors there's no one that would do that for you, and so you wanted to honor your parents. So what you would do is you would wash off their body, you would close their eyes, you would take strips of linen so that you could wrap up their body, and there was a burial shroud that would go over their head. And then there would be a seven-day period of mourning, grieving, and celebration, and they would take that body, and they would take it to a tomb. Here's a picture of one of those tombs. Now, they didn't have excavation equipment like we did. They did everything by hand. To cut out of a rock face, a, a, a place where they could take a body was expensive and difficult, so space was at a premium. A tomb would be a place where all of your ancestors would reside there. And they, and they wouldn't make, like, huge door openings, just enough so that you could take the body into this place. And when mom or dad would die, you'd wrap it and you would have seven days, the, you would parade the body through town and people would celebrate and honor the death of this individual. 
and then you would take them into the tomb, body wrapped, and there was a ledge inside the tomb. In some cases, there were actually like a, a, a horizontal hole into the face, and, and you would place the body in that space, and many times there was even seats on the outside of the tomb where the family for that seven-day period would gather and would pray, and they would celebrate the life of this person who had just passed. And the idea was this. Space is at a premium. We're not gonna give a ledge to every person. And, and so what they would do is they would, they would wrap the body because after a year when the body was done being decomposed and all that was left was bones, they wrapped it because they were gonna gather up all that stuff and they put all of the bones in a box called an osiri box. Here's a picture of one of those. And it would have been big enough just for the bones. And they would write the name they would write the name of, of the person that was deceased on there, and they would set them after that had happened, after that year, they would set them in the corner of the room, and there would be Uncle John was right there, and then Uncle Bertha was right next, Aunt Bertha was right next to him, you know, and then Cousin Lenny, there they were, and you would kind of, that was how it was done, because it was expensive. Why, why do I make a point in sharing all of that? Because when we read John 19 and 20, Every action of Jesus' friends communicates that they were completely convinced that he had died. They, they had been there. They watched him get bludgeoned to death. When, they, when Joseph and Nicodemus took him off of the, the cross, his body had already been drained of its fluid. It had probably started to congeal. The flesh was hanging off of its bones. They had to wrap it. They had to clean him. Can you imagine trying to clean that off? They had to wrap it probably just to keep the flesh together. And they thought, I'm not going to let him be dishonored like a criminal. Here's a tomb. We're going to use this tomb for him. And they placed him in the tomb, but it was a Friday, and the next day was a holy day, so they couldn't finish all that needed to happen. And at that point in time, Jesus' friends, they went back to the home, and they're thinking, okay, that seven-day period of mourning is upon us. And so now we, we can't leave now because it's a Saturday, but the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go. And we're going to honor our friend that has fallen. We're fearful. We don't want the Jews to see us. So we're just going to sneak our way around to do this. And so Mary Magdalene, this, this woman who was a demoniac that no one would spend time with, that no one could heal, Jesus steps in and heals her. And he, start, he says, hey, not only am I going to heal you, I'm going to give you dignity and respect. And you get to be with me and my disciples. And she was a part of that inner circle. Mary so was devoted to him. She couldn't bear the thought that, you know what, it hadn't been finished. And everyone's going to show up. And they're all going to go to honor Jesus. And he's not done yet. He needs to be finished being wrapped. So it says this in John chapter 20. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. The stone being removed from the entrance, who would be so lazy as to do that? Don't they know the animals are going to get in there and defile his body? What, what's going on? And she freaks out and she runs. She runs back to where the disciples are and pounds on the door. Pounds on the door. Says, hey, come. So, so all of a sudden, verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. This is so funny to me. This is an aside. But this gospel is written by John. And when he refers to himself, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. It was like Ned telling everyone he's best friends with Peter Parker, right? Like, like he, he's kind of giving himself some street credibility. The one that Jesus loves, he just drops it that way. Mary says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. 
That first objection, man, people have been having this for thousands of years. The body was stolen, but come on. Nobody comes back from the dead. That's not how things work. He was deader than dead. The blood had ran out of him. And besides, look, look, the Romans were great at killing. They had a 100% record. Nobody ever bounced back after a crucifixion. It didn't happen. They, they were very successful at that. So Peter, the other disciple, they start for the tomb. Both were running, <laughs> but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's a little silly, right? But it's almost like John is saying, I was faster than Peter. I outran him. I bested him, <laughs> right? He's making it subtle. He says he bent over because, again, it wasn't a huge opening. It was a small little opening early in the morning. Maybe they had a lamp with them. They could barely see in. He bent over. It was cut by hand. It was not open. It, was spa- it wasn't spacious. He looks in, and he sees the strips of linen lying there. But he did go in. And I just imagine him scratching his head. Who would, who would want to unwrap that? It is gory. I mean, his face was so swollen. Who would ever want to unwrap that? So Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. Peter wasn't hesitant. He jumps right in. And he investigates it. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place. It was separate from the linen. What on earth is happening, he must be thinking. Now, the language behind this actually tells us that it was neatly wrapped up. It wasn't hurriedly discarded. Nice and neatly folded on the ledge. It says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, when he went inside, he saw it, and he, he believed. And I'm thinking, what did he believe in? What did he think was happening? He had no frame of reference to understand what was happening. Maybe he thought it was like, you know, Thanos, like snapping his fingers, and so the body just materialized and went up to heaven, and so that's why it wasn't there anymore. That God just magically took him. What exactly did he believe? Well, John knew that it wasn't a crime scene. It was well too organized. Whatever John saw, he knew that there was something God-sized happening, and they run back to the, the house where the disciples were held up where they were hankering down there. And then John records that that evening when all the disciples were together, they were in fear because the Jews were, were against Jesus and against them, and so they locked the doors. And as they're in these locked doors, and they're trying to understand, first he was killed, and then we couldn't even finish the entombment thing, and then someone took him. What's going on? And in the middle of that, the locked doors, Jesus shows up in front of them. And I just imagine them like, rubbing their eyes, and then all of a sudden saying, like, no, you see this too. And Jesus talks with them and says, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands, showed them his side. The thing is this, not all the disciples were there. 
a guy named Thomas was missing. But the disciples found him and said, Thomas, you won't believe what just happened. Thomas is thinking, guys, I know you really loved him. That's, that's cute and all. You guys thought you saw him. But he's dead. He's dead. You're just hallucinating. He, he says this. He says, I'm I don't believe it, I'm skeptical. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe it. It's where we get the phrase, doubting Thomas, from. But once again, the disciples later that week were hanging out, the doors were locked. Thomas is there this time. The doors are locked, and again, this time Jesus shows up. And Jesus looks at Thomas. He says, peace be with you. And I just imagine the rest of the disciples going, that's right, this is what we saw last time. And Thomas is like rubbing his eyes just to understand what's happening. Jesus says this, all right, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. See, something was different and something was quite new because they had seen Jesus actually bring people from the dead before. They had seen him take this girl who was sick and the cells in her body had broken down and stopped working and Jesus prayed over her and then all of a sudden the cells were well and she was resurrected. They had seen Lazarus be dead for days and Jesus shows up and speaks to Lazarus to come out and when he did, See, he was wrapped with the cloths. But but Jesus wasn't wrapped with the cloths, and his cloths were there. And it's not just that his cells that were dead were now well. His very nature had shifted and changed, so much so that when Mary saw, saw him in the garden, she went to give him a hug. He said, don't hold on to me. I haven't gone to the Father yet. I read between the lines and think, you know, I'm, I'm not done yet. Something had changed about Jesus, and it wasn't simply cellular regeneration. No, he was translated, theologians call it, the first fruits of the resurrection. And Thomas couldn't believe his eyes, but Jesus says, touch it. And I find that so very encouraging because it's like as if Jesus would say, I get it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. If someone tells you this is true, I get why you wouldn't believe it. But here, touch it. Like I, I'm, I'm actually here. You can actually touch me. And something's different about me. And this, this wound in my side, you can see it too. I find this encouraging because there are plenty of times where there are spiritual things and I'm just skeptical about it. And I see God looking at our skepticism and not having condemnation but having compassion, saying, I get it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But then then Jesus said some words that must have stung and grabbed his attention, something that should grab our attention some 2,000 years later. He says this, He says, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting 
and believe, Thomas. And then Thomas, this moment of clarity, this is what he says out, says out loud. He says, my Lord. In other words, someone who has authority over me. My boss, my king, my Lord, and my God. You're not just a man. You are divine. You are clearly not just a man. You are God himself. And listen, the call upon Thomas is the same call that's upon us. Stop doubting. Stop doubting and believe because at a certain point, you've had all the evidence showed to you. At a certain point, the witnesses are credible. You have all the evidence you need. Now stop doubting. At a certain point, you make a decision. Thomas may have doubted, and he was skeptical, but then, see, he saw it, and he believed it, and he went on, just like the rest of the disciples, to be so convinced, not just in this cool thing Jesus did, but in who Jesus was, that he was actually the Son of God, and that this translation, this resurrection, that wasn't simply coming back from the dead, it was something else, that it meant something so powerful and, so, so powerful and revolutionary that would have changed the face of the world, and he would go on and say, I have to tell other people about this. And he traveled all the way to India telling people about Christ. And when he died, he died a martyr's death. Do you know? Do you know how Thomas died? A spear in the side. The same way Jesus died. Verse 29, Jesus told him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's as if he was speaking right past Thomas and he was speaking to you and he was speaking to me 2,000 years later. Blessed are you if you believe. I know, I know it's hard to believe, and it's not simply faith in faith. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. It's looking at the evidence and saying, it's trustworthy. I've asked hard questions, and it is trustworthy. You can put your weight into it. It's actual, and it's true. And listen, you're never going to be able to know everything, but do you know enough? Do you know enough? And I think when you put all the evidence together that, it's, that the resurrection is actual and true is the most compelling and the most credible answer. And, and Jesus would say, stop doubting and believe. And John would go on in a few verses later and he's saying, hey, I'm telling you all this stuff so that you would believe, not just in the neat parlor tricks, but that Jesus is who he says he is. Stop doubting and believe. And listen, listen, even if you're skeptical, even if you don't believe it's true, you should want it to be true. Because if this world is nothing but an accident and it's all gonna be burned up by the sun in the end, what does it matter if I, 
what happens to anything. Why should I sacrifice if it's all just going to be burned up? And if it's all just survival of the fittest, aren't I just more fit than that other person who's down on their luck? But listen, if it's true, if it's true, it means that these things we would invest ourselves in, it means there's infinite hope and there's infinite reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. So you, sh- you should want it to be true because what it means is that Christ is the first of the resurrection, but he's not the last. He's the first fruits, but we get to be pulled into that as well when we believe in him. The resurrection means that it's available for us, and the empty grave means that death no longer has victory, and sin no longer has the last word, and the enemy no longer has the loudest laugh. It means that that there's restoration and there's newness to life when we're frustrated in this world. It means there's gonna be a day when there's not conflict and there's not strife and there's not bigotry and there's not abuse and there's not hatred, when there's no more pain and every tear will be wiped away from us. And it's not simply that we're spending time in a better place, but our our very nature is changed and the world is made new and, and there is no more crying and cancer is done away with and pain and death and abuse and our own substance abuses are done away with. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers something truly unbelievable, and that's hope. And he would say, stop doubting and believe it and accept that it. it's trustworthy, it's true. It offers us hope. It means that these frustrations that we live in the middle of is not all that there is. It's not just going to dissolve as the sun swallows us whole. As Tolkien said, Everything sad is going to come untrue. And he redeems it. And it restores us. And listen, if everything, if Jesus was resurrected, it means that everything he said was true as well. And how we should treat one another. And how I manage my resources. And how I choose to forgive the most unforgivable because the resurrection is true. Because the resurrection is true, it means that he's God the Son, and it means that we have an avenue to connect and relate to the one who created the universe and call him our Abba Father and crawl up on his lap because the resurrection is true. But it also means this, and this is why I wonder if it's a little uncomfortable, because if it's true, it means that he has authority over you. And he has authority over me. And it's uncomfortable. And it's just easier to say, I just, I can't accept that. But you need to examine and say, how, how can you explain what happened after Christ rose and it took off like wildfire? How can you explain that? Because he rose from the the dead, it means he has authority over us. It means that how we act towards our enemies matter. It means how we act towards women matters. It means how we act towards our husband matters. 
It means how we spend our money matters. It means how we live on this earth matters. It's not all gone like that. No, we have a king who is resurrected. And he invites us into that resurrection. And he promises us that hope. So stop doubting and believe. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to respond together in worship. With all of our eyes closed and our heads bowed, God, we just spend some time here with you. And it, it is, it's too good to be true. I, I don't understand all the dynamics of everything that happened. It confounds me. And yet here are these witnesses who testify what they saw, what they touched, what they smelled. So God, give us faith to see. Thank you, God, for what Christ did on the cross that we celebrate. But we're not here to celebrate the death. We're here to celebrate what the resurrection means for us. And God, for every broken heart in the room, God, would you come and speak your resurrection life over them? For every broken marriage in this room, would you speak your resurrection life over them? For every barren womb, for every unbelieving heart, God, would you speak it? Would you declare it? We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.